I'm actually beginning a new series uh, to this particular day on the world mission of the church. So it's appropriate that you're here. Um, I have, I've done many series here. I've never done a series on, on missions before. Uh, I don't think this will be as long as the Mark series. Uh, some of you uh, arrived here, they came, they went to their program, graduated, and, and never got, heard the beginning or the end of Mark. <laughs> so it went on for years. Uh, we'll try to make this a little less, uh, but I do think that um, series are good for your church. Uh, when you graduate, many of you will be doing pastoral ministry and, and preaching. I uh, found that series were a great way to really drive home certain great themes of Scripture. And certainly there's no more important theme uh, in, in many ways than the world and mission of the church. Now, if you were to could go back in time, can you imagine what it must have been like after the resurrection of Christ to make this transition up, you know, in, in fervent excitement about what in the world has been happening, the unfolding, the resurrection, all of these surprises, to go up into Galilee and have, as the Matthew ends his gospel, this said to you. Can you imagine the force of this? Where the Lord says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Wow. Now that is a way to end the gospel. This is climactic. This is remarkable. This is why it's often called the Great Commission or the, the Final Commission of our Lord. Think if you were in Jerusalem that night when... They were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, and they had heard through the women that they had seen the Lord, or his tomb was empty, but they were scared, they were afraid. And suddenly in the midst of that, the Lord himself appears to them, and the Lord says to them, go and, and preach the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved those who do not will be condemned, Mark 16, 15, and 16. Or in Luke's gospel, where again on the, likely the night of uh, his resurrection in Jerusalem, a very, very different kind of way, but Jesus says to them, he says that, um, you know, uh, the, the, the death of the, the, uh, his cross and resurrection had been predicted. He says, as it is written, he said, the uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And then, of course, on the, in Bethany, just before he ascends into heaven, the last spoken words of Jesus, he does it again when he says that uh, you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then there's an amazing moment in John's gospel where Jesus comes into the inner room with the disciples, and we're told he breathes on them. This is not some kind of climactic thing like in Galilee. This is a very intimate moment. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Now what we have are these amazing texts, which we'll look at all of these over the course of this study, this series. But 
all of these texts in different ways, they're not like uh, the Feeding of the 5,000, you know, where this happened, it's just recorded in all the Gospels, but these are, it's in Jerusalem, it's in Bethany, it's in Galilee, and even the two in Jerusalem, there's no verbal overlap between John's Gospel and what we find in Luke. So what we actually have are multiple times where the risen Lord gives his disciples a final commissioning, gives all of us a final command or mandate. Now, the phrase Great Commission isn't actually used like we use it today to the 19th century. Before that time, this text was called many things. It was called the Final Mandate, the Great Commandment, the, uh, the Marching Orders. I mean, there's all kinds of phrases used, but today we seem to have settled on the Great Commission. But it, the problem with this text is that if you think... Now, this text certainly is a command for us as the church to do a lot of things. There's huge implications of these final commissions for us in our lives and our obedience, how we respond to this command. It's amazing. We'll have to look at that. But it would be a mistake to view it primarily as task which the church is charged to do, which is why the morning, this morning text where we actually start. I think you should actually look at these great commission passages like you're standing at like Niagara Falls and you're watching this you know, cacophony and this crushing force of water come down. You're seeing like a full force of action for the church. But if you really want to you know, understand where this comes from, you must see that Jesus, in all of these commission texts, he is not initiating or beginning something. He is renewing and extending something. That's absolutely essential to see. So this, Jesus is actually bringing to us something that goes way back. And so if you, you, know, if you go to the Mississippi River and you want to kind of go back to the headwaters, you know where you end up. You end up in Minnesota, in a lake in Minnesota. Anybody from Minnesota here? Okay, praise the Lord. From Minnesota comes the Mississippi River. All right. In the same way, we're kind of going to hike back, hike back through all of the you know, the Gospels, the prophets, the, you know, the law, prophets, and all the way back to Genesis 12. And it's here that we find the headwaters of what eventually becomes the great mandate to the church. And it's here that we actually recognize that the world mission of the church, if you want to call it that, is not primarily the great global task of the church, but it's actually God's mission in the world to which he invites us to participate. There's a huge difference in that. Uh, this is like the ultimate act of provenient grace. God starts it and then invites us to join him in it. And so it begins in Genesis chapter 12. Now this text, uh, if nothing else, I, I love to bring this text before people who are sitting in Wilmore, Kentucky. Because unless you were born here, and I don't think any of our current students were actually born in Wilmore. I know it's a pretty rare thing, but... Occasionally it happens, but all of you can understand what it was like to hear something like, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. All right? You were somewhere in, like, Minnesota. You love Minnesota. And the Lord called you to go to Wilmore, Kentucky. Even Google Earth couldn't find it. You need the, the guy on, on Lion, you know, to come up Google and find where Wilmer was. This was like a, you, you couldn't believe it. Lord, are you sure? Wilmore, Kentucky? 
And yet here you are. You left your people, you left your churches, left your families, and many of you packed up your stuff in U-Haulets and back of cars, and you made your way to Wilmore, Kentucky. This is what we call disruptive grace. It's God's grace in that something, we, there's no doubt, this is an amazing turning point in the history of redemption. This is one of the great fountain points of redemption, and yet it begins with a very disruptive command. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now, we'll see in a moment, this is actually chiastic in the sense that it starts out with a large frame. You leave your country, you know, leave everything, leave your own people, your clan. Yes, leave you, even your father's house. But then it's going to open up this blessing. If you do that, then I can do this. And this is one of the great things about how God engages us in his mission. Because God is essentially saying, this is my mission. Let's keep it straight. This is my mission in the world. I am building my church. I'm unfolding a great redemptive thing in the world, but I'm calling you to be a part of it, and it's going to be costly for you. It's going to be painful for you. Now, there's no way we can compare our sacrifice with his sacrifice, as we will see, and to make this whole thing possible, but ultimately he is saying to us, there are some some things you have to say no to, you have to say goodbye to. There are some very painful things here. In fact, in some ways, it, it, it could be translated... The Lord had said to Abram, uh, I like that actually better. It can be either had, he said, or had said, because in some ways I like the fact that we are simply brought in on a conversation that God's already had. It's a, this is, you know, God has been working with Abram. I'm, I'm asking you to leave. Of course, Jewish tradition and Islamic tradition as well believes that Abram's father was an idol, idol maker. For whatever reason, he comes out of that tradition and comes into the worship of the one true God. Now, when he has this, uh, you know, this amazing covenant in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you have to also see that we are not dropping in Genesis 12 out of, a, you know, out of the sky. This is coming to us as a contrast to what we've already been shown, which is in chapter 11, kind of the world's plan. What, you know, God's saying, I have my mission in the world, but there's also another mission in the world. The world has its own mission. It's self-mission. And it's, of course, the Tower of Babel. If you know the Tower of Babel, very carefully, we won't go to the whole details of it, but essentially in that text, in verse 11, which, by the way, I love the fact, I don't know when you mentioned this text, uh, when um, uh, Jessica referred to it as the bankruptcy chapter, because it's chapter 11. That was a great line. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah, okay, good. Give you credit for it. Um, In the bankruptcy chapter, (laughs) Genesis 11, you have this impulse they are traveling across the plains of Shinar. They want to settle down. And by the way, the text five times uses the word the whole world, the whole world. This is, this is their global vision, to settle down, to build a city for themselves, a, a city and a tower for themselves, we call it the Tower of Babel, and to make their name great. All right, that's the, that's the plan. That's kind of the paradigm of the world, isn't it? That's what people do in the world. That's what people want to do in the world. They want to go out in the world, settle down, build something with their lives, and make their name great. That's kind of the world's project. So when you read Genesis 12, you have to see this as the anti-project. This is God's project. He says to Abraham, to Abram, you're to be a pilgrim. You're not to settle down. You're to go out as a pilgrim. You don't know where you're going. 
All right, many, all of us, many of you here today, you're here in this place. You don't know where you're going. I told one of our graduates just last night who is graduating in December, doesn't know where he's going. Many of you can say, I have no idea where I'm going. That's a good place. It's a good place. Is it disruptive? Yes. Is it anxiety producing? Yes. But it's a good to be in a place where you're actually saying, Lord, I don't know where I'm going. I want you to guide me. I want you to direct me. So Abram is going out. He's, he's not a settler. He's a pilgrim. He is, we're told, not building a city. He's, we're told in Hebrews 11.1, 1, he's looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. He's looking for another city, not his own city. And then this text says, God, he's, God says, I will make your name great. Abram, don't you make your name great. I will make it great. So this is, people often say that Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Actually, Genesis 12 is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. And it unfolds all the way through to Pentecost. So this covenant is made uh, to, to Abram. Uh, he is then told, uh, quite surprising terms, and over and over again, I'll bless you five times, I'll bless you, bless you, make your name great. And then he adds this phrase, whoever curses you, I will curse, which is a bit disruptive. But again, it, it's, a, it's important to remember from the outset of the covenant what God means when God says he curses, he will curse people. This is part of the way that the Jewish people understood uh, chesed, or covenant love. It's one of the most dominant words in the Old Testament, as you know. I think 250 times or so, God describes the way he interacts with us as chesed, his covenant love, sometimes translated loving kindness or loving mercy. What it is is that God says, I will stand with those whom I have made a covenant with. I will stand by them. And I will oppose those who stand against my plans in the world. So God, is, God will oppose those who resist his rule and reign in the world. Now this word here, which we'll look at later, but this word about bless literally means to bend the knee. Okay? He's calling the whole world to bend the knee. Those who resist bending the knee, that is they resist his blessing. But even God's opposition to the world, which is regular throughout the history of the church and through the Bible, and even that is God's blessing to them. He said, aren't you glad that there were times when God confronted you and he stood in your way when you were on your own way? And he actually, as disruptive as it was, he turned you to his way. That's actually a blessing. So even, even in, the, in the Bible, even God's curses are God's blessings. Now, I know eschatologically, ultimately, there will be final curses given. But in the meantime, whenever God opposes you, it's actually a good thing because he's reorienting you, right? So he's going to reorient the world toward this blessing. And the last phrase says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, the word here, call mishpahot, all peoples. This is a people language. This is like all families, all tribal groups. This is not about countries like the United States or Germany or China. This is about people groups in the world that are going to be blessed. Now this um, particular, and back to the chiasm, this particular covenant is repeated over and over again. So he, after the uh, time with Isaac, of course, the, the sacrificial uh, exchange of Isaac, which is the great, of course, prefiguring of the gospel, he, he says to Abraham, you know, you'll call this place 
Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And then he gives them, he repeats the blessing. And the blessing has three parts to it. Remember how he was going to leave his country, his father's, uh, his uh, clan, and his father's household. Now you have the responding, growing outward of the chiasm. He will be blessed personally. God's going to build a great nation, and then he'll, in his seed, bless the whole world. So he says to him, I'll make your descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. This is Genesis 22, 17. This is the, the imagery that's used repeatedly with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as stars, as many as the stars, as many as the sand, and also the dust of the earth. There's three images used. Two are used here. So there's going to be this massive numerical blessing. Here he is married to a wife who is, who is childless. And God says, I will take you, an obedient man, but childless, barren. I'm going to make you into a great nation as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So it's a personal blessing to Abraham. And then he says, uh, you, your descendants will take the possession of the cities or the gates of their enemies. He's going to build a great nation, a powerful nation, which we know, of course, is the, the Israelites. And then finally, verse 18 and through your seed, we'll develop that more later, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. And here he uses the term kolgoye, all nations. This again is an ethnic word. It is not again the word for geography. I'm going to bless all nations through you, all ethnic groups through you. That's Genesis 22. Then uh, this, of course, is repeated in Genesis 26 to uh, Isaac in the exact same uh, blessing. He says to him, he'll bless you uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give you and your descendants this land, this, pers- this national blessing. And then through your offspring, all nations, this is Kologoye, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me. So it's renewed with Isaac. And then in uh, Genesis 28, it's renewed with Jacob. He meets with Jacob. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And then you'll spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. This is the national blessing. And then all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. This is, again, the call Mishpahot. It's actually beautifully you know, set with Genesis 12. So you have these language of all nations, all peoples, all family groups will be blessed through God's work and his obedience of Abraham. So from the very beginning, God is setting forth a covenant which says this covenant is not simply for the Jewish people. All right, this is one of the big myths that you'll run into when you go into the church. People in the church believe that the Old Testament was a God who was for the Jews and in some way uh, was, uh, was like ignorant or unaware of the rest of the world. The whole point is God chose the Jewish people in order to bring a blessing to the entire world, to all nations on the earth. And so this Genesis 12 is the, you know, the, the focal point out of which all of this begins to go forth. And it is definitely a blessing through Abraham that comes because God has initiated this blessing to bless his people. So when you come into the New Testament and you see these unnamed disciples crossing over, and for the first time, preaching the gospel to Greeks had not been done before. They tell the Greeks 
tell them also the good news of the Lord Jesus, Acts 11. They were actually extending the blessing of Abraham. They were participating in something that God had planned from the very, very beginning, and they were caught up in that. When Paul initiates the the missionary journeys, they had planned, they had work, but at the end of the day, they themselves were carried along realizing they were part of uh, God's calling to bring them, even as the journeys unfolded, which, by the way, were not evangelistic crusades. These are church planting initiatives. As Paul is going into these initiatives, they're being directed by the Holy Spirit, right? And because this is God's mission in the world. God is directing his mission, and the seed of Abraham is, is being blessed. As, the, of course, the, the gospel unfolds and continues, when the Roman Empire fell, the amazing thing was the Christians did not regard the collapse of the Roman Empire, though they had been triumphant in that context, actually, as the end of the Christian world. When the so-called barbarian invasions happened, they saw it as an opportunity. You see, sometimes we, the gospel comes because we relocate and go to some other place and bring the gospel. It happens all the time. But sometimes it happens because God brings the world to you. We're now currently in one of the most amazing periods, I mean, the whole 20th century, but most like 50 years, one of the most amazing migrations of people and refugees in the history of the world happening right now. It's actually part of God's plan. These refugees that are pouring across borders all over the world, including our own borders, are opportunities for a blessing. This is for the church to engage joyfully and bring the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. God has his way of bringing the gospel to the world. And the gospel spread across North Africa. And the gospel spread to people like Aden and people like Columbus, uh, Columba and St. Patrick, who brought the gospel to England and Ireland and Wales. Amazing Scotland. The historians uh, sent missionaries all across the, the Silk Route, all the way to the imperial courts of China. Boniface going into Germany. Cyril Methodius into Eastern Europe, Vladimir going up into Russia. The, uh, the, after Reformation, the Moravians streaming forth from the, the estate of Nicholas uh, von Zinzendorf. Truly remarkable dis global dispersion of witness for the gospel, serving in some most difficult place on the earth, the Moravians went with the gospel. And later, people like William Carey and Abraham Judson and Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael and, and uh, Lottie Moon. I mean, there's just so many that obeyed this commission to bring the gospel out. This was all because they were being caught up in God's story and they were participating in something God was unfolding in the world that goes back to Genesis chapter 12. And this is how the gospel spread all over the world. And one of the great things about traveling, and I have been... I've been all over the world and all continents and all around the world. And what's so amazing is wherever you go, you find the church. Now, there are thousands of people groups that have not yet heard the gospel, of course. But what's so amazing is that God is doing his work. He is leavening the world with the gospel. And we're seeing this happen in our own day. From the remote church plants in the island of the Pacific to churches gathered in the mountains of Nepal. This is God's story. From Jesuits who had made their witness to the imperial courts of China, 
to the relentless travels of people like David Livingston or even Samuel Crowther into Nigeria. This is God's story. From the work of Wycliffe Bible translators, sending the Bible into tribal jungles of Papua New Guinea, to dedicated tent makers who are professionals working in some of the great cities of the Muslim world like Cairo or Jakarta, uh, Damascus. This is God's unfolding story. From English classes being taught to immigrant and, and refugee population in North America, to fiery preach on the streets of Sao Paulo uh, in Latin America or Rio, this is God's story. Church planters facing persecution in North India's Ganges Plains. People like Shivraj Mahinda right here working with the, the fisher folk uh, down in Chhattisgarh, North India. Uh, this is part of God's unfolding story. People in inner Mongolia with the bitter winds in their faces who get on uh, camels and bring the gospel into remote areas. It's amazing. It's God's story. From mass evangelistic campaigns that we see around the world, or all the way to a young woman in a you know, concrete apartment complex in Moscow who kneels down in her bed one night and invites Jesus into her heart. It's all part of God's story. And the real great opportunity that is yours, and the great thing about Asbury is we have men and women who will fulfill this in a thousand different ways. There's no one way to fulfill this. But every one of you will find in your own life a way to participate in God's mission in the world. And if you've done that, then you've been faithful to the gospel. I was in, uh, had the project in Turkey in 2000, I mean 1999. And I was there on a faculty trip. Uh, the Gordon Cunnell faculty, I was a part of at that time. We all went to Turkey. And we were, and of course, I was so concerned that it would turn into, as some of these trips do, if you go to Turkey as a Christian, into a trip down, you know, memory lane. We were going to go to all the sites, you know, oh, the Apostle Paul was here, you know, and we, we rode on the same roads the Apostle Paul went on. And we were at Troas, we were here, we were at Ephesus, we went, we went to actually Greece and Turkey both. And we were like retracing all of the early journeys of, of the church. And it was, it was great, it was inspiring. But I couldn't help but say, you know, but think about it. The, were all the seven letters of the seven churches, they're all mosques today, right? And so I was very concerned about uh, our faculty going there and just having it as like a trip down Bible Lane. So I said, let's make sure we encounter what it's really like in Turkey today. And so I uh, arranged for a, uh, my first time, first day or two there, we arranged to have a Turkish Christian address our faculty. Now, when I told our tour guide that that night we'd be addressed by a Turkish Christian, she said to me, no, 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 you're mistaken. Uh, there are no Turkish Christians. It must be an Armenian Christian. I said, no, no, I know there are a lot of Armenian Christians in Turkey. Not a lot, but you know, there are, those that are Christians are there are Armenians, but this is a Turkish Christian. She's impossible. She says, impossible. I said, well, it's, it's possible. She said, well, if that's, she's like, she was saying like, it was like saying someone saying like, fried ice, you know, <laughs> Turkish Christian. She could not imagine the two together because to her, to be a Turk was to be a Muslim. That's it. At the time that we were there, and it's changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years, but there were only about 
500 to 600 Turkish Christians in the whole of Turkey. So she had never met one. So she said, may I come and meet? I, never, I, couldn't, I can't believe it. I don't, I don't think you're right. I'm sure it's an Armenian. I said, well, come tonight and hear for yourself. So she came tonight. He addressed us. And she, afterwards, she said to me, she said, I cannot believe it, a Turkish Christian. She couldn't believe it. The gospel was, had spread to the Turkish people. Well, later on in that trip, it was like one of these 10-day trips, we were uh, in one of the sites, and Greg Beal, one of my good friends, he was on the faculty at that point, now he's a Wheaton. But Greg Beal, was, he just finished his book on Revelation. It's, it was so big that when I got it from him, I said, this could be either a commentary on Revelation or a good uh, stop for a doorstop. It was so big. I mean, there's no way the wind could blow the door closed. That, that commentary is like this big. He had, uh, I mean, the guy's brilliant, okay? So we were at this site, like one of these Christian sites in Turkey, and he was giving us a little miniature lecture. We all gave little miniature lectures during the course of the time. This was his lecture on something in New Testament history at that point that happened at that site. And it was great. It was eloquent. It was beautiful. But what happened was I was, couldn't help but notice that so here's the faculty in a little circle around Dr. Beale. I noticed another circle was gathering. It was a circle of Turkish young people. They, had, they didn't really care about what we were talking about, but they wanted to practice and learn, and, and they wanted to practice their English. So they wanted to get close to English speakers to, you know, help improve their English. So someone realized that the, the Turkish circle around us is greater than our circle. There are a lot of Turks around us. So, I, so during the course of the lecture, this little miniature lecture, which was using a lot of big words, seminary words, um, he had mentioned the gospel this, the gospel that, the gospel other. So when he opened up for question and answer, I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Beale, I said, you mentioned uh, to us in the course of this lecture, you mentioned something of the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. I said, would you please tell me what is the gospel? And he looked at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> You're a full tenured professor at a seminary at Gordon-Conwell and you don't know what the gospel is? And I said, Dr. Beale, would you please tell me what the gospel is? <laughs> well, finally, it was, I could just see in his face, he like, suddenly he got it. And so he said, well, thank you for the question. And so Dr. Beale, in his own beautiful way, he shared the gospel that day in that circle. And all these ears were listening to the gospel. And later on, when we got home, we had a night where we shared pictures and all, and he said to me, he said, you know, I had a great time in Turkey. I've always wanted to go there. I saw these sites. It was just like a life, life dream for me. He said, but my favorite day was the day you asked me, what is the gospel? <laughs> I thought you were crazy, but I got your point. But the point is that many of us can go through life, go through our ministries, so preoccupied with all the things that we're doing, that we don't realize there's this huge circle around us. Lexington alone, we're, in the, we're like, like the Kentucky, the central Kentucky, like the Bible Belt, right? You have to pass 100 churches to get to Lexington, right? You go into Lexington, Lexington is 48% nuns. Not N-U-N, N-O-N-E. All right, I'm sure there are wonderful nuns in Lexington too, but... <laughs> Not, those who have no affiliation with the gospel, who have not responded to Jesus Christ, Lexington's full of them right here. And right here in Wilmore, I'm sure. So part of, the, part of the, the great mission of the church, 
part of why Christ gave those commissions in, Genesis, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Acts 1-8 is to awaken the church to hear God's global heart, God's heart for the world. God loves it when we, when we renovate Estes Chapel. He's glad that we put these new windows in. He'll be glad when we finally scrape this paint off the walls and put new paint on the walls. All that's great. It really is. It's wonderful. It gives honor to him. But it will mean nothing. It will mean absolutely nothing if we don't ourselves who embody this place go out from this place and be in touch with God's heart for the world. And that's how it'll be for all of your churches, all of your ministries. There'll be so, I promise you, you will face 101 distractions. There'll be so many things. There'll be meetings to attend. There'll be just, you know, budgets to be balanced. There'll be renovations to be done. There'll be all kinds of problems and issues and all that's important. You've got to work through all of that. I'm not minimizing any of that work because most of my life is spent in things like that too. I get it. But at the end of the day, if I lose my heart for the lost, those who never heard about Jesus Christ, then I have missed the heart of God because God's heart is always saying, I have said from the very beginning, I've entered into covenant with Abraham not to bless Abraham alone, but through that blessing to bless the world, to bless all peoples. God has blessed you that you might be a blessing. And there's a world out there, not only refugees, but there's a world out there all across the world. There's thousands of people groups who have never even heard the name of Jesus. There are people right here in Lexington who do not know Christ unless we take the initiative to get ourselves into God's heart for those people. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would always quicken in our hearts your heart for the world. We thank you. When you look at the world, you don't see Chinese, the nation of China, or the nation of the United States, or Germany, or Brazil. What you see are peoples around the world, families, clans, who need to hear the gospel and are brought into relationship with you. Lord, give us your heart for the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.